We're on the Christian survival kit, and we're in uh, the, I think it's the 11th lesson on this over in Luke chapter, I mean, John chapter 15. And just to refresh your memory just a little bit, I know it's been a few weeks since we've taught on this. John 14, 15, and 16 is the last teaching that Jesus gave his disciples before his crucifixion. And he said in John 16, 1, I'm saying these things unto you so that you would not be offended, which Mark chapter 4, verse 18 says, when you get offended is when the word ceases to produce in your life. So Jesus was telling these things. This is his last minute instruction to his disciples before the worst time in his life and the most trying time that they would ever experience in their life. So you know he was giving them the cream of the... Uh, teaching. He was sharing with them the things that they needed to know to be able to survive this hard time. So I call this a Christian survival kit. It's like, what do you do in a crisis situation? And I've broken it into 16 teachings. We're now into the 11th teaching. The first one was don't panic. That's the very first thing he said, John 14, 1. Believe is the second step. Put things into perspective. And we talked about all of these things, the power of the Holy Spirit, walking in love. We talked about watch your tongue. He said, you know, that the prince of this world comes and he has nothing in me. I'm not going to talk much with you. We talked about the importance of words. We talked about self-centeredness. We talked about a lot of different things. And so we're now down to John chapter 15. And I think we quit last time in John chapter 15, verse 7. We studied verses 1 through 7. And the point that I was making there was that you have to abide in Christ. Don't ever come out of Him. And of course, you don't come out of Him in the sense that you renounce your salvation, but you don't ever come out of peace. You don't ever come out of faith. You don't ever come out of love. You just abide in all of these things that Jesus is. Uh, Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the scripture there says, Love suffereth long and is kind. It gives you all these attributes of love. Well, God is love. And so, if you're going to abide in God, you're going to be patient. If you're impatient, you aren't abiding in God. If you're anxious, you aren't abiding in God. If you're worried, you aren't abiding in God. If you're operating in unforgiveness, you aren't abiding in God. And so that's the point that I was making, that you just have to make a decision that, you know what, I am going to do what's right. I'm going to abide in God regardless of what the consequences are. I was talking to a person uh, just recently that they're in a real crisis situation and they're going to have to make some decisions and it's it's tough and they're trying to decide what do I do in this crisis situation. And I said, you know what? You have to do what is godly regardless of what the consequences are. I don't care if it kills you. You do the right thing. You abide in truth. And he says, but if I do that, this could be the result. And I said, you know what? You cannot make something right by doing something wrong. It just doesn't work that way. You do what's right. And if it costs you your life, you do what's right. That's the way that I live my life, and I believe that that's what these verses are saying. When you're in a crisis situation and you're trying to figure out, how am I going to get through this? What am I going to do? Do what's right. Abide in the Lord. Walk in the truth that He's given you. And don't ever compromise. Compromise is a language of the devil. Whatever you have to compromise to keep, you're going to lose. And so just abide in the vine. And then in verse 8, it says, Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, 
even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Now, I've already taught you back in chapter 14, so I'm not going to make this a major issue, but it needs to be reinstated because I know that you sometimes forget and you need things to be rehearsed and go over and over and over. But some people interpret this in verse 9, that, you know, abide in my love. And then in verse 10, it says, if you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. And they think, all right, the way I abide in the love of God is by keeping all of these commandments. No, this is giving you a test to see if you are abiding in the love of God. Keeping commandments doesn't make you receive the love of God, but receiving the love of God will make you keep commandments. If you truly love God or are in fellowship with love, well, love doesn't do any damage to anybody. Love would never lie about a person. It wouldn't be jealous of a person. You would think more about them than yourself. You'll never have unforgiveness towards a person. Love is the fulfilling of the law. So if you are truly operating in love, you will have uh, the right actions. And so anyway, I've already taught on that, but that's important that you understand this. This is just saying, here's a way that you can tell if you're abiding in the love of God is what's the fruit that's coming out of you? Again, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It says, uh, love is patient, it's kind, it suffers long, it isn't boastful, it doesn't vaunt itself, it doesn't exalt itself. And you go through the list of all the things that it says about love, and then just look at it. Is that the way you are? And if you aren't like that, then you aren't abiding in God. That doesn't mean that you aren't saved, it just means that, you know what, you aren't abiding in Him. You, his love isn't perfected in you. In verse 11, he says, These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. And anyway, in the second session, we'll go on into some more things, and we're going to go back and overlap some of this. But let me just say here that uh, one of the things I want to point out, there's a lot of things here that we could talk about, but I want to focus on this. It says, um, these things, verse 11, have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. When you're talking about being in a crisis situation and you are having all of this pressure come at you and you're pressured to operate in fear, doubt, or whatever, I tell you, one of the greatest tools that the Lord ever gave us is just the power to have joy and to rejoice. And it's amazing how we forget this. You get into a crisis situation, most of us get into this uh, panic mode to where, man, you're serious as a heart attack and you're just in there fasting and praying and screaming and crying and calling out to God. And there's a place for being that intense and stuff. But you know what? If you are in a crisis situation, you have to maintain your joy. You have to focus on joy. The Bible says there's so many scriptures. I've got a three-part series on, on joy and what it does. And so I could minister on this for a long time, and I'm just hitting some of the highlights. But Nehemiah 8.10, let me just turn over and read the context of this to you because you need to get this in its context to be able to fully appreciate this. So Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. This is where uh, Nehemiah was one of those that God sent back from captivity to Jerusalem and he was helping the Jews rebuild the temple. And when he came there, the work had been totally quit because of, the, of these people that had 
uh, brought up an evil report. And anyway, Nehemiah started trying to rally the people to get back to doing what God had told them to do. And so he gathered all of the people together. And one of the first things he did was have them stand. He built this platform and he stood up on the platform and he began to read Scripture. He began to read the Old Testament commands. And these people had been raised in captivity. They didn't have a Bible like what we had. And they had heard some of the stories like of God delivering the Jews from captivity. But they didn't know Scripture. They didn't know the promises of God. They hadn't been taught the commands and how you were supposed to keep the feast and how you were supposed to offer sacrifices. And they they were basically uh, uh, scripturally illiterate. So he built this platform. He stood up there and from morning until night, he just read the first five books of the Bible, all of the commandments. What happened to the Jews when they disobeyed the, the promises that if you didn't obey that the wrath of God would come on them and they would be expelled from the land. And they realized that, man, the word had come true and that they had borne the judgment of all of these things. And it says that as he read these things and it sunk in on them what had happened, that the people lifted up their voice and wailed and cried and began to repent. And so anyway, that is the background uh, of this. In verse 8, let's see, am I in the right chapter? Okay, yeah, I'm in the right chapter. In verse 8 it says, So they read in the book in the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah and Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people said unto all the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto the Lord. Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Often we take that little phrase, the joy of the Lord is your strength, and we just pluck it out of this scripture and we say that. And it's true, the things that we're saying. But if you understand, here they were realizing, man, we're under the judgment of God. This is why this happened. Our parents, the reason that they died, the reason all of these tragedies happened is because we didn't know these things. And they were repenting. And you know what? That's a godly thing to do. But yet in the midst of it, they stood up and said, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet. See, here's a scripture for fast food that you can stand on. Eat the fat and drink the sweet. And, um, and it says, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so you've got to remember that in a crisis situation, there may be, it may be appropriate for you to cry if something has happened. I mean, it, it's not, all tears aren't bad. I'm not saying that you stifle them and that you never are touched by any negative situation. But in the midst of whatever is going on, the scripture says in Psalms chapter 34, verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make her boast in thee. The humble shall hear thereof and be uh, glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. You're supposed to be doing that at all times. Uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, I believe it is, says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And I believe the reason he said again, I say rejoice, is because when you say rejoice in the Lord always, or rejoice in the Lord at every time, regardless of what's going on in your life, rejoice all of the time. If you say something like that, you know the average person is going to say, he couldn't mean what he said. You can't do that. 
You can't rejoice regardless of what's going on. And so he says, again, I say rejoice, just so that nobody would think that this was a mistake or that maybe he didn't mean it the way he said he repeated it. Again, I say rejoice. And I firmly believe, based on all kinds of scriptures, that you know what? You have to maintain joy. I don't care what is going on in your life. Here's another scripture that bears out the same principle over in um, Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, it says, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. In verse 7, it says, Rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. The way your faith abounds is through thanksgiving. Or you could say that the way your faith becomes complete or the way your faith reaches its ultimate strength, the way that your faith has the most powerful effect is through thanksgiving. Or you could turn this verse around and say it this way, that if you aren't thanking the Lord, if there isn't praise and thanksgiving in your life, then your faith is not complete. It's incomplete. Those are powerful statements. And if that's true, which it is, then you know what? You can basically take your spiritual pulse by just finding out whether you're really thankful and praising God. If you are so burdened down, there's a lot of Christians that present that, oh, I'm interceding and I'm just so burdened over this situation. And they present that as being a godly thing. And there are some people that because of religious teaching actually believe that it's godly to be burdened. And it's godly to bear about these sorrows and griefs. Jesus said just the opposite. Matthew chapter 11, He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. And He says, My burden is easy. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. It is not appropriate for a Christian to ever be so burdened that you lose your joy. That is wrong. You abound in faith with thanksgiving. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And if you ever, ever, ever allow the devil to get your joy then he can steal your goods. It's like your joy is a... I don't know how you'd say that. If you were talking science fiction, it's like a force field around you. When you're operating in joy, it's like it just stops things. They can't penetrate. It's a force field. It's like a door or something that before a person can get into that room, they have to get through your joy. They have to, you have to stop. You have to open up and quit operating in joy and get into grief. So you have... It's an absolute must that regardless of what crisis situation you find yourself in, you've got to operate in joy. And some people find this hard to do because they say, but there's nothing joyful about my situation. For instance, let's look back in John chapter uh, 15 where we're reading this from. Jesus was speaking this to His disciples the night before His crucifixion. And you've got to remember the context of this. You can't just take this out and try and dissect it separate from its context. He was talking to his disciples. It was only going to be a matter of hours until he was arrested. And then he was going to be crucified the next day. It looked like that everything, like Jesus had lost. And most people would say, you shouldn't rejoice in a situation like that. What is there to rejoice over? See, most people, matter of fact, the way that most people think today, if you were in a situation that the disciples were in, and if they were still rejoicing and praising God, even after Jesus had been arrested, and after they saw the mock trial and His beating and Him being crucified, most people would say, man, something is wrong with you if you can rejoice 
during these kind of things. And yet, this is exactly what Jesus said. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. He was writing this or speaking this to them the night before his crucifixion. The scripture says rejoice always. I will bless the Lord at all times. You know what? You can rejoice regardless of what's going on. If nothing else, I touched on this when we were back in chapter 14 and in verse... um, 28, he says, you heard how I said I go unto my Father. If you loved me, you would rejoice. And this is when I taught on self-centeredness, that the reason that these people panicked and the reason they had so much grief and sorrow wasn't only about them seeing Jesus suffer, but they were thinking, how's this going to affect me? I thought that this was the Messiah. I gave up everything to follow him. And the root of all grief in your life, the root of all sorrow is actually self-centeredness. It's not always obvious. Sometimes it's subtle and we say, oh, but I'm just so burdened for this person. Well, the truth is you're so burdened because of how it's affected you and they've disappointed you and and all these other kind of things. The truth is that if you are really thinking about other people, if these disciples would have been thinking about Jesus, he said, if you loved me, you would rejoice because I was saying I was going to my Father. Even if they didn't understand the resurrection, if they looked at the crucifixion as defeat, They could have at least said, at least he's going to be with his father that he talked about constantly and that he spent so much time with. And if they would have been thinking about him, they could have rejoiced even in the midst of something that looked like defeat. Plus, the Lord had given them 14 prophecies that he would be crucified. And about seven of those, he prophesied that he would be resurrected on the third day. And so there was, there was information that they had that if they would have thought on the Word and on what Jesus said rather than let their circumstances and their eyes and their natural mind take over, they could have rejoiced. They could have just by faith said, I don't care what this looks like. This man who spoke and calmed the seas and spoke and people were raised from the dead and blind eyes were opened. They could have thought of all of this and they said, the same one who said those things also said, I will build this temple again. I will rise the third day. And they had a choice. They could have operated in faith and have rejoiced in the midst of that. I really believe that this is critical. And I've mentioned this before, but let me illustrate this again. When I saw my son raised from the dead, I can guarantee you this, I believe, is one of the keys that saw that happen. When we heard about it, we had enough wisdom to understand our words were important, so Jamie and I didn't say anything contrary to what we were believing for. And instead, we spoke and commanded Peter to come back to life. We understood authority, we spoke, and we did that. But on the way into town, I started having the same feelings and stuff that any of you would have if your son was dead. And you know how I countered it? I just started praising God. I started rejoicing even though my son was dead. And the reason he was dead is because he overdosed on drugs. And you know what? I wouldn't have been... I I started telling the Lord. I said, God, I'm believing for him to come back, but I want you to know that I don't blame you for what happened to my son. You didn't kill my son. My son killed himself. And I started saying, you're faithful. You are a good God. You didn't do this. And I started praising God in order to counter the grief and the sorrow and stuff that was coming at me. And when I started praising God... It's just like these scriptures says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. You abound in faith with thanksgiving. It's just like I turned a switch on the inside. And all of a sudden, I mean, I started having faith rise on the inside of me. 
And then prophecies came back to my remembrance. And I mean within minutes of me starting praising God, not because I felt like it, not because circumstances dictated it. It was something I chose to do based on I will bless the Lord at all times. I'm going to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. When I started doing that, it's just like I turned on a turbocharger. Man, I mean the power of God kicked in and I really credit that for seeing Peter raised from the dead. I really think that was one of the key elements. So anytime you get into a crisis situation, there may be a place for you pouring out your heart and maybe crying or something, but the scripture says, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplications, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. That's Philippians chapter 4. I'm not sure what verse, but it's right around that verse that says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Six and seven. And so anyway, you if you are making a supplication, you have to let your request be made known with thanksgiving. It's a command from God. And so it, you just this is something that you need to make a commitment that, you know, it doesn't matter what happens. It doesn't matter how bad your situation gets. When you get up every morning, you're going to start praising God, whether you feel like it or not, whether you had a good night's sleep or not, whether you feel good or not. You're just going to praise and bless the Lord at all times. If somebody criticizes you, instead of sitting there thinking about what they said, you know what, with thanksgiving, I'm going to make my request known. I'm going to praise God. If Satan can't steal your joy, he can't steal your goods. Satan has to get your joy before he can get you. Your joy is one of the greatest defenses that you have against the devil. And there's a lot of reasons for it. For one thing, when you start praising God, when you are operating in thanksgiving, you know, it does a number of things. One of them is it forces you to think on the positive instead of the negative. And yet our tendency is to think on the negative. If the doctor tells you you're going to die, your tendency is to start thinking about, oh man, what's it going to be like when I die? What's going to happen to my kids? You know, I don't have my insurance paid up. You know, I'm not even sure. And you'll start worrying about all this kind of stuff and you'll start thinking about the agony and you'll remember dear old Aunt Susie died of the exact same thing and you'll have a flashback of all the suffering and how everybody cried. And you start thinking on negative. You know how to counter that? One of them is to start saying, praise God, and you start thanking God. And if you continue and maintain an attitude of gratitude and praise, you will have to get your mind off of those negative things or you'll quit praising God. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And if you start saying out of your mouth, praising God and thanking God, you will have to start saying, but Father, I praise you. And you'll have to start thinking about your word says. I don't care what the doctor says. Here's what your word says. By your stripes, I am healed. No weapon formed against me is going to prosper. You will have to change your thinking from the negative to the positive. Or I guarantee you, if you keep your mind on the negative, you'll wind up griping. You can't sit there and say, Father, thank you that I'm going to die just like dear old Aunt Susie did. I can see myself writhing in pain. I thank you, Father. <laughs> you know what? You don't do things like that. You'll wind up griping if you're thinking on negative things. So if you make yourself out of your mouth, start praising God, it forces you to focus on the answer instead of the problem. Man, that is awesome right there. If that's all the benefit that there was to praise and thanksgiving, that would be tremendous. But then also the scripture says 
that uh, praise is a weapon against the devil. Look at this passage over in uh, Matthew chapter 21. This is as Jesus was going into Jerusalem um, in what we call the triumphant procession, I mean the um, triumphant entry into Jerusalem or Palm Sunday. And um, in Matthew chapter 21... It says in verse 15, And when the chief priest and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were sore displeased. And they said unto him, Hearest thou the, what these say? And Jesus said unto them, Yea, have ye never read out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise? This is a quotation from Psalms chapter 8 verse 2. Keep your finger there in Matthew 21 and look at Psalms chapter 8, verse 2. Jesus was quoting from the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. And so it was worded a little differently, but by reading this and comparing it, you can see exactly what these words mean. Here's, Here's what it says in Psalms chapter 8. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings... Hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger? So by comparing these two scriptures together, since the scriptures don't contradict itself, you can see that when he says, Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise, the Old Testament says, Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength. So by comparing these two together, you can see that praise is strength. Or it would be the same thing Nehemiah 8.10 says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Praise is spiritual strength. If you are short of praise, you're weak, you're anemic spiritually. I don't know if you guys are just thinking about what I'm saying. I don't know why, but you know what? This would be a really good place to say praise God or something. And this is awesome. And if you really believe this, then, you know, here's probably a good way to look at it. Instead of you evaluating yourself, just think that if I was to follow you around all day, every day, how would I evaluate you? Would I evaluate you as a griper and complainer? Are you a person that operates in praise and thanksgiving? Are you a person that blesses the Lord at all times? If I was to ask you, you might say, something, but if I was to follow you around, how do you think that I would evaluate you? And if you say, well, you know, I'm not a very happy person or I easily get discouraged or something like that, you can use any excuse you want to for being that way, but I can guarantee you, you're a weak person spiritually. That's not said to condemn you. It's said to enlighten you and show you where one of the areas of problem is in your life. If you aren't praising God, then you don't have strength. And it says in Psalms 8, 2, that this strength is to still the enemy and the avenger. Talking about the devil. When you praise God, here's the logic of why this works. Satan is an absolute, jealous, envy, envious person. We associate that, you know, with people. We see people who are totally so self-centered that they can't stand for anybody else to get credit. They want to be recognized. They want to be... That was my idea. They... They are super jealous. They're eaten up with jealousy. Well, where do you think that comes from? 
That's literally a trait of the devil. And in Isaiah chapter 40, uh, 14, it says Satan sin was that he wanted to be like the Most High. He says, I will exalt my throne above the stars of heaven. I will sit on the sides of the north. I will be like the Most High. Satan has always, always, always been envious and jealous of God and specifically the praise that went to God. And he rebelled trying to gain that. And this is behind, I think, so much of what the devil does. Like, I'm going to say some things here that some of you will probably disagree with, but I believe it anyway. You're entitled to your opinion, but I'm not going to agree with you. We'd both be wrong. So, But I believe that this is what's behind Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, Halloween, and all kinds of things. Originally, those were uh, festivals to honor God. But then they come out with, well, let's do Santa Claus. Anything to keep people from just worshiping God straight out. Let's, Satan hates God to be praised. He can't stand it. And just like, you know, if you were around a person that was very insecure and wanted all of the praise and credit for himself, and uh, let's say that Pete was that person that was just totally insecure, and if I started praising Colin, you know what? Pete just couldn't stand it because he wasn't getting the credit and stuff. You get around people that are like that, and I guarantee you they will either jump in and try and divert your affection towards them, or they'll get up and leave. They cannot stand to see somebody else get the credit. That's exactly the way the devil is. Satan hates God to be praised. That's what he's always wanted, and he can never get it. And so he would rather have Santa Claus praise than to have Jesus praise. Let's have an Easter bunny get the credit and let them get excited about Easter eggs rather than talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Let's have them dress up in these costumes and do everything, but let's not... You know, it started as All Saints Day and things like this. Let's not get into the real purpose of it. He hates to see God praise. So when you start praising God, Satan is going to try and get you to stop or get you occupied with something else. Or if you continue, I guarantee you, it stops Satan in his tracks. Satan will leave. There's Old Testament examples like uh, Saul who had the spirit that tormented him and he called for David and when David played on a harp, the evil spirit left. And uh, there's instances of where Elisha called for a minstrel and when the minstrel came, boy, the anointing of God came and things like this. Praise literally stops Satan in his tracks. Satan hates praise. It's the same way that if you see people who are you know, druggies and they're into this culture where they just hate everything to do with God like a Satanist or something like that. You put them into a service where there's praise going on and people are giving testimonies about the goodness of God and the greatness of God and stuff. And I guarantee you those people are uncomfortable. They don't like that. They will either get converted or they will leave, but you cannot get a person who's demon-possessed to enjoy praise and worship. They just don't do it. Satan hates it. So, not only does praise and worship focus your mind on the answer and do tremendous things for you, but it just drives the devil mad. That's enough reason right there to do it. Amen. I guarantee you, it's strength and it's power, and it will break things. If you find yourself in a crisis situation, say, for instance, uh, the doctor tells you you're going to die and you got cancer or something like that, you know, one of the things you can do is just begin to start praising God and that demonic force that is behind the cancer will not be able to stay in your life because it can't abide praise. Plus, then you bring other things into uh, bear, like 
I'd have to look up the reference on this. I think it's Proverbs 17, 27 or something like that. But it says, a merry heart does good like a medicine. When you start praising God, did you know that it literally will produce health in your flesh? There's a guy named Norman Cousins, and he just recently died, I think last year. But back in the 50s, he was a medical doctor. And he had seen lots of people die through cancer and stuff. And he was diagnosed with an advanced cancer that his prognosis was only six months or something like that. And he, he, the medical doctor, refused to take the treatment that he gave people because he saw how damaging it was. And he says, I'd rather die normally than to go through the torment that the doctors put you through. And you know what this guy did? He was a Christian. And he took that scripture, a merry heart does good like a medicine. And what he did was check into a hotel and he took all of the three stooges, Laurel and Hardy and all of those things. And for a month and a half or two months, he stayed in a hotel and played comedies all day long, every day. And he laughed himself well and lived for another 40 something years and just died, I think it was last year. And he wrote books on the power of this. And he started an entire medical field that was beginning to explain that, you know what, some of your sicknesses and stuff can be related to things. He's the one that proved that uh, depression suppresses your immune system and makes you vulnerable to things. Did you know that arthritis, they're, they're saying that there's a relation between stress and things like this and arthritis because stress affects your immune system and arthritis is basically where your own body is attacking your, your itself and it causes inflammation in the joints and things like this. I'm not saying that it's all mental or emotional cause, but it's a factor, one of the major factors. And so when you start praising God, not only does it make you focus on the right thing, not only does it drive the devil mad, but man, it's good, it's healthy for you. If you're in a crisis situation, I, I tell you, praise is one of the greatest things you can do in any situation. And we have been totally conditioned opposite this, that you know you only praise God when you feel like it. Boy, you need to praise God at all times. You need to bless the Lord at all times. If you have to do it through gritted teeth, it's better to do it through gritted teeth than it is to not do it. Some of you think, well, I'd be a hypocrite. The truth is I don't feel like it. Well, it depends on who you think is the real you. If you think that carnal part of you that's got pain in your body or the emotional part of you that's been hurt and insulted is the real you, then yeah, you're a hypocrite. But if you see yourself a new creature in Christ and know that according to Galatians 5.22, you have love, joy, peace, long-suffering, this is what's going on in your spirit, then you're a hypocrite if you operate in depression just because things are bad. The truth is the spirit part of you is turned on, excited, rejoicing, and praising God at all times. So it really depends on whether you know your true identity or not. It depends on whether you're looking at what, who you are in the spirit or whether you're looking in the physical realm. And here's a third benefit of praise, and a lot of people don't understand this. But you know what? When you praise God, it blesses God. It ministers to God. Most people don't think that really they have much to offer God. There's a lot of people that think all I've got to offer God is my service. I've got to go do a work for God. I've got to lead somebody to the Lord, cast out a devil, or pray and intercede and bind this or that. And I'm not saying that God doesn't accept those things. Those things are pleasing to Him. But He created us for relationship and fellowship. And in heaven, man, you know, I could spend an hour just trying to make this one point. I'm just having to say these things quickly. But in heaven... There is nothing but constant praise. It's going on 24 hours a day. It says that the 
Elders, every time the four living creatures praise God, they take their crowns and throw them on the ground and fall prostrate before the Lord and begin to worship Him. And then the next verse says that the four beasts cease not to worship God 24 hours a day. So they're constantly worshiping God and the elders are constantly falling down, throwing their crowns down, putting their crowns back on, sitting down and falling down. I mean, it's just one constant deal of praise and worship. That's what's going on in heaven. That is, if you could really see God for who He is. And if you really saw how much He loves us, man, there is zippo, zero reason to be upset because your worst day as a Christian is better than your best day as an unbeliever. And if worse came to worse, and if you died from your sickness, you're going to go right into a mansion that He's been working on for 2,000 years. It only took seven days to create the heavens and the earth, and He's been working on your mansion for 2,000 years. You know what? It's going to be awesome. If you really were thinking straight, you would just have constant praise in your heart, even though all kinds of problems are happening around you. You know, I don't know how to express that. I don't know how to make you understand this. And I'm not perfect in this, but this really is where I live. I have reached a place that, you know, I have gone through terrible things. And some of you say, well, you haven't seen my situation. Well, you hadn't seen my situation. And I have been in things that with my mind, I'm sitting here saying I shouldn't be rejoicing God, but I rejoicing in the Lord, but I just can't help it. I, I guess I could help it, but I'm not going to help it. I don't want to help it. And I have just chosen to praise God. I praised God when my son was dead, and there was no guarantee that he was coming back to life. And I praised God so much that when we got in and saw that he was raised from the dead, I didn't praise God then. I'd already done it. I didn't go, oh, it really worked and start praising God. I really believed it worked before. I mean, I rejoiced an hour before I knew that he was raised from the dead. And so I, I've experienced this. I, when everything has gone bad in my life, when it looked like that, man, our ministry was over, I remember my board telling me, you're broke. We're shutting the ministry down. We're kicking you out of the ministry. You know, I, I started praising God. I started th- thinking, this is awesome. Man, my relationship with God would go through the roof if I didn't have to deal with all these problems. I just started praising God. You know what? If you praise God regardless of what's going on, it really does. It's just like giving you an, an immunization. It just keeps you from getting bothered by stuff. If Satan can't get your joy, he can't get your goods. It's that important. And that's the reason that in the midst of this crisis situation, the night before his crucifixion, he says, man, I'm saying these things so that my joy will remain in you. And he could have said, even through the crucifixion, even for the next three days. This is what he was talking to him about. If those people could have rejoiced and praised God, even after seeing their Savior crucified, not understanding that he would be raised from the dead, if he told them that they were supposed to do that, then I guarantee you, your little problem that seems so big in your eyes is nothing in comparison. And you can praise God. It's a choice. In Philippians, when, you know, Paul was writing that from prison. When he was um, in jail in Rome and he wrote it back to the Philippians. And yet, in Philippians, there is more mention of joy, rejoicing. There are 17 times in four chapters of Philippians that he talked about joy, rejoice, rejoicing. He mentioned joy more than any other book that he had written, and he had been in prison for over two years. He had been shipwrecked and left for dead. He had been 
um, enslaved on the way to Rome. And he had been through these terrible things. And yet here he was talking about the joy of the Lord and rejoicing in the Lord. Joy is not something that is a result. It's a choice. And here's another thing that will help you. Did you know that the word joy is a noun, but rejoice is a verb? The significance of that is a noun is a person, place, or a thing. It's something that just exists. But a verb is something that you do. So when he says rejoice in the Lord always, he didn't say have joy always because you know what? Joy can fluctuate depending on things. Sometimes you feel less joy, but you can rejoice. I don't care if you're crying on the inside. It's an action. You know what? You may not feel like getting out of bed. You may hurt, but you can still get out of bed whether you feel like it or not. You don't have to feel joy to rejoice. Rejoice is something that you do. And if you start rejoicing, you will feel joy. Joy is a byproduct of acting on the Word and doing what's right. Most people wait until they feel joy and then they're going to rejoice. Anybody can praise God on the other side of the Red Sea after you've already gone through and seen your enemies destroyed. You know what faith is? is praising God on this side of the Red Sea because you're trusting in God. And you've got to develop that mindset that you are going to praise God. You are going to be a, a person who operates in praise. You ought to get to a place that, man, it doesn't matter what happens. You are going to glorify God. You're going to operate in joy. And it doesn't, the worse it gets, the more you praise God. If you hit your thumb instead of letting out something else, the first thing you ought to do is, Thank you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. Talk about it. It's true. It's exactly what I do. When I hurt myself, that's the first thing I do is start praising Jesus. And I've done it so much that I, it's just the way it is. You hit me, I guarantee you, first thing to come out of my mouth is, Thank you, Jesus, or I love you, Jesus. It's exactly what I'd say. You may not believe that, but it's absolutely true. Anytime anything hurts me, comes against me, whether it's physical or emotional, I can guarantee you I'm going to praise God. It's just like you push me and praise is going to come out. It's how I live my life. And some of you think, ah, you can't live that way. Well, don't wake me up. That's how I'm living. And so praise is powerful. In the 16th chapter of the book of Acts, I wish I had time to turn over and read all of that, but here's Paul and Silas. They had this vision. A man said, come over into Macedonia and help us. And so they got up and the next morning headed for Macedonia knowing that God had sent them. So they had a word from God. They were obeying God. And within just a couple of days of them being in Philippi, they got arrested, beaten, and then put in the dungeon, in the lowest part of the dungeon, their feet and their hands were in the stocks. That meant that they couldn't even get in a comfortable position. They couldn't do anything to alleviate the pain. You know that there was rats. You know that it was, it was infested with stuff. And there was no light there because the jailer, when he came in, had to call for a light. So they were in total darkness. It was a terrible situation. And yet, what did they do? At midnight, the worst, darkest part of the night, when everything was the worst... They started praising God. And you know what? There's some people, based on what I was talking about, how that praise is a weapon against the devil to stop the enemy and the avenger. There are some people who will operate in praise thinking if I'll praise God through gritted teeth, then I can kill this cancer and I can do these things. And they will praise God, not really in true praise, but they're doing it as a weapon. 
they're fighting the devil. And that's not 100% wrong. But did you know Paul and Silas, they, they went even beyond that. They weren't praising God just to overcome their fears and their hurts and things like this and to drive the devil out. And to prove it, when they got to praising God, God got to patting his foot. An earthquake came. It opened up all the prison doors, took off all of the chains. And instead of them running out, would see people who would have only been praising God to get deliverance from the situation they're in, they would have run out. The moment that their bonds were released, they'd have been gone. But you know what? Paul and Silas, not only them, but even the unbelievers, everyone else in the prison, not a one of them left. Because you know what? They had gotten caught up into praise. They were so content praising God that they didn't have to get out of the dungeon to be happy. There's some people that will praise God to get out of the situation they're in. But the moment they they get relief, they quit praising God because that wasn't really what was in their heart in the first place. But then you can go beyond that to the point that, you know what, you praise God not just to get something, but here's a radical thought. Praise God and thank Him because you really love Him. Not because you're trying to manipulate Him. Get something from Him. Using it as a tool. A lever on God. But get to where you praise God because you really love God. You know what? If you would live that way, it just really does drive the devil mad. He can't penetrate praise. That's powerful. You know, Paul, he was so excited to preach and tell people about the Lord that he loved it and he praised God for the opportunity of sharing the Word. So then they'd arrest him and beat him. And he had praised God because he was counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of the Lord. So then they'd throw him in the prison. At midnight, he'd praise God. And he'd get the whole jail saved. And then they'd come and say, you're released and free to go. And he'd say, great. He'd praise God for that. They'd say, I'm going to put you in prison if you don't quit. And he'd say, praise God. I've been there. And he says, we're going to kill you. And he says, for me to die is Christ. And uh, you know what? How do you get to a guy that nothing bothers him? Threaten him with prison. He says, oh man, I've been there lots of times. I praise God. And he says, even when I was released, I didn't have to leave. I enjoyed it. We're going to kill you. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. How do you intimidate somebody like that? You can't. You know, when you get to where you live in joy and peace and you're praising God, I tell you what, it's just like your Teflon. The devil can't make anything stick to you. He can throw whatever he's got at you, and it's just like water off a duck's back. It just doesn't bother you if you determine that I'm going to bless the Lord in all things. It doesn't mean that you're praising God for doing those things because God is not the author of everything that happens, but you are going to praise God regardless of what the devil throws at you. It is one of the most powerful things that you can do. It's strength to still the enemy and the avenger. And if you aren't operating in praise... If I would follow you around and you would be afraid of how I'd characterize you, then you know what? You need to improve in this area. And it's something that you train yourself in. You did not become negative overnight. You've been taught to be negative. I don't know if you've known that or not, but you really do. You are taught to be negative. You are taught to take the cares of this life on yourself. It's a process. When you started out, when you were a little kid, you were a happy kid until somebody messed with you, until bad things started happening, until somebody started browbeating you or something. I guarantee you, you've been trained and disciplined to be negative. And even if it wasn't an individual, life will make you negative. Just the hard knocks.
But you can also retrain yourself. It's a process. But you can train yourself to praise God. So you just make a decision to start doing it. And if you catch yourself not praising God, but instead being burdened down and depressed and discouraged, instead of getting mad at yourself and beating yourself up, just say, whoops, and get back to doing what God told you to do. And so you do it again. And you know what? The second time, it's a little easier to do it because you've already done it once. You do it the third time, the fourth time. After a while, it gets to where you just do it so often that you know what? It becomes second nature so that you punch you and out comes praise. But it's, a, it's an acquired trait. It is not human nature. It's your born-again nature. Amen? Man, that's a powerful truth. That'd change your life if you operate in what we talk about tonight. Anybody got a question or comment? Everybody's got this? You're going to become one that people are going to say, you are the happiest person. You just praise God all the time. That ought to be everybody's testimony. Yes, sir. I have a question. People say, thank God for everything, but it's thank God in everything, right? There's a difference. God is not the one who causes problems. Like I used on my radio program today. I happened to listen to my radio program as I was driving in. And I was using, uh, oh, who's the Denver Broncos coach? Shanahan. I used him as an example that when Derrick Williams was killed on uh, New Year's Eve, um, Shanahan said, well, we don't know why God took him, but he got a good one. And I used that as an example. I said, God didn't take Derrick Williams. That's saying that God had somebody shoot him in the juggler vein and kill him. That's not right. God didn't do that. But do you still praise God despite the fact that Darren Williams got killed? Yeah. I praise him in spite of it, not because of it. I'm going to praise God in every situation, but I'm not going to credit God with that situation. If you diagnosed with cancer, God didn't give you cancer, but you still should be able to praise God. Man, it's a powerful weapon. So you praise God in every situation. And there's even one verse, I think it's in Colossians, that says, thank Him for... All things, but if you look the word for up, it's it's not used the way that people are talking about. I don't think that Paul ever thought that anybody would credit God with murder, with uh, Hitler killing six million Jews, Stalin killing twelve million Russians, and on and on and on. Nobody in their right mind would think that. You have to be religious. You have to be totally brainwashed by religion to blame God for homosexuality and bestiality and stuff like that. God isn't the one that does that, but you can praise God in spite of those things going on. Let's take a break and we'll come back.